Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we are beginning a new series called A New Way to Be Human. We're going to look into what it means to be people who are uh, living a human life and dwelt by the Spirit of God, what that means for us as individuals and as a community to live an embodied faith that um, isn't just in our minds, but, but in our daily actions. So the, the title of today's message is Seeing People Like Jesus. And also I want to say thanks to everyone who came out for our Bag Hunger Outreach last weekend. We collected 4,362 pounds of food for the Covington Food Bank. And so we really appreciate all your work and it was a great time to hang out with people as well. So we're going to do that again in the fall. But for now, let's head to North Shore Vineyard to the talk. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to be launching into a new series called uh, A New Way to Be Human. This is going to take us for the next few weeks. Uh, there we go. About the time I leave. Um, uh, and, and basically, the idea of this series is we're going to look at the implications of, of kind of the incarnation of Jesus, what that means to us in, 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 in kind of an embodied faith. And you're like, oh, what, is, what the heck does that mean? I just heard embodied and incarnation and faith. Uh, what I'm talking about is our tendency in Christianity in America, at least post-Reformation, is that we tend to have a faith that is based on beliefs and ideas and kind of abstract things up here. And so we kind of have this, this idea that, that happens in a lot of expressions of faith where, where we, we focus so much on what we believe that we never actually embody that thing. And so that stuff stays in our head or it may stay in a worship service, but, but it doesn't actually make its way into our everyday ordinary life. And, and really what we see in the New Testament is, is that, that from Jesus to, to even the disciples that, that we are called to be people that are, 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 are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that, that God touches everything that we do, that everything in our life uh, becomes a place of, of meeting God. So we have an embodied faith. So we don't just tell people God loves you, but we actually become the love of God. We don't just tell people that, that, uh, uh, about the peace of God. We become the, the, the peace of God around people. And so we're going to cover some, some, some things along the way. I love one quote from St. Irenaeus back in the second century. He says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And, and we're, I'll talk more about kind of some of the, the, the pitfalls that we get into. But, but the glory of God is that when we would be fully alive, living from, from God's spirit, living from, from, from his presence in our lives. And so I want to talk about various aspects that will help us engage what it means to look like Jesus, have an incarnational faith, an embodied faith in this world. And so today we're going to, to look at the topic of what it means to see people like Jesus. Not, not, not people that look like Jesus, but to, to see people. That, I was having problems with my title today, so uh, seeing people like Jesus. Like, you look like Jesus. Um, the way that we can look at people through the eyes of Jesus. So Matthew 9 is going to be our text today, starting in uh, verse 9 through 13. And I'm going to be reading this out of the, the message translation. Passing along, this is along the Sea of Galilee, by the way, Jesus saw a man at his work collecting taxes. His name was Matthew. And Jesus said, come along with me. Matthew stood up and followed him. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disputable, disreputable characters came and joined them. 
When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit, and they lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with the crooks and the riffraff? Jesus overhearing shot back, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Bam. I love that. I mean, I love it right now. I might have been one of the Pharisees back then, but uh, get them, Jesus. Uh, I, I love this passage. It, it may be one of those stories that if you've read it before, you might have just kind of glossed over it. Jesus calls Matthew. He follows him, blah, blah, blah. But I, I want to bring our attention this morning to how scandalous this was. We, our tendency in America is when we see the word tax collector, we think of the IRS. And while the IRS is not generally loved by most people in this country, um, we don't share the hatred for the IRS that, that the Jewish people would have had for tax collectors in their day. Tax collectors in the Jewish, Jewish times were not simply people who just you know, sat in an office and, and got your tax returns sent to them once a year. These were people that, that were Jewish... Like Matthew was a Jewish guy, but he was working for the Romans. And they were considered like sellouts, you know, just people who betrayed their country. Here they are. The the, the Roman tax system at that time was something around, uh, uh, the tax rate was somewhere around like 50 to 60%. And then Herod put another 20% on top of that. So, you know, your take-home pay would be like what we pay in taxes right now. so you can imagine at the Sea of Galilee if you'd been out fishing all day. And this probably happened, uh, very well could have happened to, to Peter and the other disciples. They might have known Matthew from this very kind of thing happening. You're out there fishing all day. You catch 100 fish. You get back. And, and when you get back to the dock, you've got to go see the tax collector. And he takes 50 of your fish right off the top. That ain't cool, right? Especially if you're fishing for a living. And so Matthew was this guy, you know, a tax collector would have been sitting there with a booth to, to take 50% off the top of everything you brought in. And so you can understand why they were so hated. Um, and not only that, but they were, a lot of the tax collectors were just corrupt. They were taking, skimming a little off the top. And so they were living better than everybody else, making money off of their own countrymen to, to fund the Roman Empire who was oppressing the Jewish people. So they, they were just seen like scumbags. Totally. That's the, Jew, uh, the, the Greek translation of that word. If you, um. but, but what we see here is that Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he sees Matthew. He sees him. You know, we have people in our lives that we don't see. We walk by every day. Maybe, maybe in a restaurant you don't see the person who brings your food. You might see him, but you don't see him. We got people out on the streets that, that you know, just, just turn your head. Don't look at them. And see, for, for most of the day, and we can see this even in this passage, we can see that, that the Pharisees, when they saw Matthew, what they saw was a problem, a problem that needed to be fixed. They saw somebody that was standing in the way of, of what God wanted to do. They saw somebody who was corrupt, they didn't see a human being created in the, in the nature and image of God. They saw somebody who was a sin. And so, so they, they looked at Matthew and they put him in this nice little box, labeled him, and, and just judged him. But Jesus, Jesus didn't see Matthew the tax collector. Jesus didn't see Matthew the, the, the corrupt guy who was betraying his own people. 
Jesus saw Matthew as a human being created in God's image, and he invited him into the work of God. And I love what Jesus says. You know, there, I think it's, isn't it amazing to think that Matthew, after this encounter with Jesus, I mean, it seems like a pretty, pretty small thing to us. But this thing made such an impact on Matthew that he throws a party and he invites all his sinner friends. Because, dude, if you're a tax collector at that time, you're not, you don't have any other friends. So all of his friends are the riffraff, scum of the earth, the people nobody likes. And so I think it's awesome that Matthew didn't just have a party, but he felt it was okay to get Jesus around his friends. Doesn't that sound cool? I mean, I've been a part of churches oftentimes where um, I'm afraid to bring my friends to church. You know, I, I remember as a new Christian, like, I like Jesus, but I'm afraid that if I bring my, my riffraff friends here, <laughs> you know, like, like they're going to get beat up. People are going to look down on them. Matthew didn't think that when it came to Jesus. He's like, I'm going to get Jesus here. I'm going to get all my friends, and they're going to see how much he loves them. But the Pharisees, they chime up. Why are you eating? Jesus, I thought you were a prophet. I thought you were a great teacher. What are you doing hanging out with these kinds of people? See, the Pharisees, they didn't see these people. All they saw was problems. Martin Buber uh, was a, uh, a Jewish guy back in the early 1900s. He wrote a book called I and Thou. And he he talks about how as, as human beings, we tend to have two kinds of relationships. We either have an I-it relationship with people where we see people as objects or we have an I-thou relationship. And an I-thou relationship is when you actually sit down with somebody and you see them not as a project, not as a problem, not as a barrier to what you want, not as something that will advance your agenda or fulfill your own desires, but you see them as another person created in the image of God. And when that space happens, there's something holy there because God's in the midst of it. But the problem is... In much of our world today, our world has become a place of objectification. We treat people like it's. Now, we can see this in the pornography industry, treating women like body parts and men like body parts, and we just make sex objects out of them. And normally, when we think of objectification in our world today, we think of that. But you know what? Objectification goes on everywhere. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing to Matthew. They made Matthew into an it, he wasn't a person. He was a problem. And this is dangerous stuff. And we're never going to grow to be the people of God who can incarnate the love of God to others if we see other people's as it's. Now, how does this look in, in kind of your everyday life? Well, if you're a boss, you may be tempted to see your employees as only what they can do for your company. Now, part of that is just basic economics. I mean, you got a job to do. I get that. But there's a way that you can run your business where, where you only look at people for what they can give to you. You only see them as their gifts and their talents and their resume, and you don't see them as persons. You can objectify your, your, your kids' teachers at schools. You can think that they only exist for your child's education, and you can just not see them as persons and never, never think about what goes on in their world. 
We can objectify our coworkers. We can see our coworkers as, as an end to, you know, somebody that I got to step on top of to get up the corporate ladder. I mean, heck, we can do it in very simple ways. You can see your garbage man. How many of y'all ever see your garbage man? I mean, like, see them. Not just see them taking your trash out. But ha- ha- have you ever stopped to like, I mean, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I see mine either. Okay, I'm not like pointing out, how many of y'all? No, I'll, you know, but, but how many places in our life do we just treat people, whether consciously or unconsciously, we just don't really see them? You know, there's, a, there's an innate uh, desire in the, in, the, in the heart of every human being to be seen. Because when you're seen, it's like you exist, right? It establishes you as a person. When somebody sees you, when somebody notices you, it does something. And, and I'm not talking about just in a prideful, cocky, kind of you know, showy way. I'm just saying when somebody actually sees you, that does something to you. When somebody sees you not for, for your, your external giftings, but actually sees you for, for your internal heart, for who you are, man, that, that, it does something to you. You feel like you exist, like you're human. That's what happened with Matthew. Matthew was seeing that he wasn't just his problem. He wasn't just a sin. He wasn't just this, this corrupt individual that Jesus actually saw him for something else. Now, I want to I bring up, you know, this is a, a probably a very extreme example, but I want to bring this up today because I do not think that we as American Christians are immune from this. I want to bring up uh, the kind of a worst case scenario that we've seen in our world of objectification. And, and then I'm going to dial it back a little, so hang on. <laughs> this is going to be tough. Uh, you know, back in the 1930s, probably one of the grossest, Examples of, of objectification of a people was what the Germans, uh, the, the Nazis did to the Jews. And, and it started in the early 1930s. It started by just kind of mocking them, mocking the Jewish people. You know, you, you may have seen satirical cartoons that exaggerated features and, and, and exaggerated things about them. But what started with just kind of mocking turned out to all-out scapegoating. You know, the Jews are, are, the, are the reason for all the problems here. I mean, really, in reality, if you study history, like, the Jews were not the source of the problems for Germany. Like, it was their own dang fault. Their, their own nationalism and, and stuff had gone rabid and started World War I. And so the, much of what they were suffering in the 1930s was based to their, their own run-amuck nationalism. But they were scapegoating the Jews. The Jews are the problem. They're the reason why the unemployment rate's so high. They're the reason why the economy's so bad. And so they started scapegoating them by spreading propaganda. They, they began to boycott their businesses. And then they finally instituted systematic oppression of the Jewish people to where uh, Christians were forbidden to marry Jews and and. and People were, were forbidden from doing certain types of business with the Jewish people. And then eventually what, what, what started with propaganda, what moved on to boycotting, ended up it be, becoming the, the ghetto system. You know, Germany established some 1,000 ghettos for, the, for Jewish people. Not just Jews, I mean Polish people. Uh, 
1,000 ghettos. And a ghetto, if you don't know what it is, it's, it's, a, it's where they would wall off a part of the city. It's, it's not that different from what the Jews are actually doing the Palestinians now in Jerusalem. You wall off a part of the city and you confine the people of the city into that one little area. They can't get in or out. Or if they do, it has to be under special kind of uh, circumstances. And so the Jewish people were, were confined, cut off from the rest of society. But you know what started with objectification? It didn't end there because it never ends there. And what happened after that, we know the sad story that, that after the ghettos uh, came the uh, concentration camps. And you know what would happen at a concentration camp after you were loaded on a, on a, uh, a train like cattle? You get out at the, at the concentration camp, they would shave your head, they would take all your belongings, give you a prison uniform, and the ultimate sign of dehumanizing the Jews was that they put a number on you. You're not, you're not a person anymore, you're just a number. You're an animal. Whenever human beings feel this about somebody else, only bad things happen. And we see that, you know, I got to, I, I visited Auschwitz probably about 16, 17 years ago. And, and it was it was very troubling experience. I think one of the grossest things, that, the just horrifying things that I encountered there was not just that the Germans had systematically killed millions of Jewish people. But at some point, early on, they figured out, if we're going to be killing all these Jewish people, we might as well turn them into a commodity. And so the Germans did horrible horrible things they took the they would shave the head of women and take their hair and make blankets out of it they would take their gold teeth to 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 make it into bars to gold bars to finance the war there were even reports of of making soap from the fat from the corpses horrible horrible stuff but it all started from a place of objectification It all started with, you're not as much of a human being as I am. You're the problem. You're the one to blame. We're the victims of of you. And I see this to this day in America. It's popular nowadays to scapegoat all kinds of groups, right? We so easily point our finger at, oh, well, it's the, it, it's the Muslims. They're the problem. If we could just get rid of the Muslims. The atheists say, if we just get rid of all religion, you know, all those religious guys. Uh, it may be the, the Republicans. It may be the Democrats. It may be the, the young people saying, you know, the, it's the old people's fault or the poor people blaming the rich or the rich blaming the, the ones who want to redistribute wealth. But It's not just a matter that we have opinions on things. Opinions are fine. And political ideas are fine. Religious ideas are fine. But when we move from our opinions to a point that you don't matter because you're different from me. And I'm putting you in this little box with a label on it. And I'm not going to look at you anymore. We better watch out. Because I don't think America, land of the free, the home of the brave, is immune from the very stuff that happened in Germany. And the truth is that if you look in Germany, what happened with the Nazis, the majority of the church was either behind it or indifferent to it. You realize that? The majority of the professing church 
in Germany. Now, I, I mean, I, the majority of the church in Germany actually got behind or was indifferent to the plight of the Jews under the Nazis. And we think we're immune from that today. Oh, that can never happen. We would never do that. But it starts in a very uh, innocuous place. It starts in this very, very simple thing. I'm sure nobody would have ever imagined when these editorial cartoons of the Jewish people were being published in the newspaper, when Jews were, you know, just, when it was just rhetoric in the beginning. Nobody would have imagined that a few years down the road it would have got to that. But it did. And it started with an I-it relationship. I-it instead of I-thou. I'm going to close today by reading an interesting story. Um, I think it was back in 2012. uh, Maybe I forget the the actual date of it. But uh, you remember when uh, Dan Cathy, the the, uh, head of Chick-fil-A, came out with his his, uh, came out against gay marriage publicly. And it came out that the uh, Chick-fil-A was actually supporting many organizations that were actually, uh, uh, you know, fighting against homosexual um, organizations around the country. And, you know, all of a sudden, (laughs) eating at Chick-fil-A became like a political social statement, you know, and and, the same thing kind of happened with Starbucks. And I'm like, can can we just like chicken and Starbucks and just like, (laughs) like them? I mean, is that okay? Uh, Without making a statement? (laughs) But I want to read you a story, and it's a story that, that uh, maybe you've, you've read it, but I, that what, what started with Dan Cathy's um, statements publicly against gay marriage, um, that wasn't the end of the story. And I want to read you a story that I think is a beautiful picture of what it means to enter into an I-thou relationship with someone you disagree with. And I think this story is a great picture of an embodied faith, a faith that's not just caught up in morals and ideals, but that actually enters into the lives of others. So it's a long story for me to read up here, so buckle your seatbelts. This is written, this is called Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. This story was written by Shane Windmere, who was a director of, uh, he was a national advocate for GLBT uh, organizations. Uh, He heads a a gay lesbian group called Campus Pride uh, that that exists at universities around the country. And so with this story, if you you Google it, it shows a picture of him and uh, Dan Cathy at the Chick-fil-A Bowl uh, hanging out together. And here's how the story goes. I spent New Year's Eve at the red-blooded All-American epicenter of college football, at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, next to Dan Cathy as his personal guest. It was among the most unexpected moments in my life. Yes, after months of personal phone calls, text messages, and in-person meetings, I am coming out in a new way as a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and the COO, Dan Cathy, and I'm nervous about it. I have come to know him and Chick-fil-A in ways that I would not have thought possible when I first started hearing from LGBT students about their concerns over the chicken chain's giving practices. Why was I now standing next to him at one of the most popular football showdowns? 
How could I dare think to have a relationship with a man and a company that have advocated against who I am? Who, who, would, take part, who would take apart my family in the name of traditional marriage? Whose voice and views represented exactly the opposite of those of the students for whom I advocate every day. Dan is the problem. Chick-fil-A is the enemy, right? Like most LGBT people, I was provoked by Dan's public opposition to marriage equality and his company's problematic giving history. I had the background and the history on him, so I thought that I had my own preconceived notions about who he was. I knew this character. No way did he know me. That was my view, but it was flawed. For nearly a decade now, my organization, Campus Prize, Pride has been on the ground with student leaders protesting Chick-fil-A campuses across the country. I had researched Chick-fil-A's nearly $5 million in funding given since 2003 to anti-LGBT groups. And the whole nation was aware that Dan was guilty as charged in his support of a dip- biblical definition of marriage. What's more, what, what more was there to know? On August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a s- surprise call from Dan Cathy. He had gotten my cell number from a mutual business context serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind. Turn his lawyers on me. The first call lasted over an hour, and the private conversations led to more calls the next week and the week after. Dan Cathy knew how to text, and he would reach out to me with new questions when new questions came to his mind. This was not going to be a typical turn of events. His questions and a a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with Dan and representatives from Chick-fil-A. He had never before had such dialogue with any member of the LGBT community. It was awkward at times, but always genuine and kind. It's not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our own families. Dan, Kathy, and I would together try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and the real-life accounts from youth about the negative impact Chick-fil-A was having on campus climate and safety at our colleges across the country. He was concerned about an incident last fall where a fraternity was tabling next to the Chick-fil-A restaurant on campus. Whenever an out gay student came on campus, on campus would walk by the table, the fraternity would chant, We love Chick-fil-A, and then shout anti-gay slurs at the student. Dan sought first to understand, not to be understood. He confessed that he had been naive to the issues, and at the issues at hand and the unintended impact of his company's actions. Chick-fil-A also provided access to internal documents related to the funding of anti-LGBT groups and asked questions about how our concerns related to this funding. Funding. An internal document titled Who We Are expressed Chick-fil-A's values, which included a commitment to treat every person with honor, dignity, and respect, including LGBT people. Dan and his family members had personally drafted, refined, and approved the document. Through all this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. 
His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and hear my perspective. He and I were committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground if possible and to build respect no matter what. We learned about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. You hear that? We learned about as people, about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. During our meeting, I came to seeing that the Chick-fil-A brand was being used by both sides of the political debate around gay marriage. marriage. The repercussion of this was a deep division and polarization that was fueling feelings of hate on all sides. As a result, we agreed to keep the ongoing nature of our meetings private for the time being. The fire needed more fuel. No, needed no more fuel. Sorry. <laughs> Throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband. Tommy, in return, I learned, my husband Tommy, in return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And in that, we had great commonality. We were each entirely ourselves. We both wanted to be respected for others and for others to understand our views. Neither of us could or would change. It was not possible. We were different, but in dialogue. And that was progress. In many ways, um, I'm going to just skip on down. He says, my relationship with Dan is the same, though he is not my family. Dan... Is in my, Dan, in his heart, is driven by his desire to minister to others and had, chose, and had to choose to continue our relationship throughout the controversy. He had to both hold to his beliefs and welcome me into them. He had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints and life while even not being able to reconcile them with his belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He explained his world without abandoning it, and I did as well. You hear that? He had to both hold on to his beliefs and welcome me into them. He had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints in life, even while not being able to reconcile them with his own belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He expanded his worldview without abandoning it. I did as well. As Dan and I grew throughout mutual dialogue and respect, he invited me to be his personal guest on New Year's Eve at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. This was an event that Campus Pride and others had planned to protest. Had I been played, seduced into his billionaire life? No, it was Dan who took great risk of inviting me. He stood to face the ire of his conservative base and potential boycott by being seen or photographed with an LGBT activist. He could have been portrayed as caving into the gay agenda by welcoming me. Instead, he stood next to me most of the night, 
night, putting respect ahead of fear. There we were on the sidelines, Dan, his wife, his family and friends, and I, all enjoying the game. And that, why, that is why building a relationship with someone I thought I would never understand mattered. Our worlds, different as they can be, could coexist peacefully. The millions of college football fans watching the game never could have imagined what was playing out right in front of them. Gay and straight, liberal and conservative, activists and evangelists. We could stand together in our difference and in our respect. How much better would our world be if more could do the same? Now it is all about the future. One defined, let's hope, by continued mutual respect. I will not change my views, and Dan will likely not change his, but we can continue to listen, to learn, and appreciate the blessing of growth that happens when we know each other better. I hope that our nation's political leaders and campus leaders might do the same. In the end, in the end it is not about eating or eating a certain chicken sandwich. It is about sitting down at a table together and sharing our views as human beings engaged in real, respectful, civil dialogue. Dan would probably call this act the biblical definition of hospitality. I would call it human decency. So as long as we are all at the same table and talking, does it matter what we call it or what we eat? It's funny how... Dan, the guy writing, uh, the guy writing this um, article, it's funny how he says, I haven't changed my views and neither will Dan, Kathy. But really, they both did. Because you know what they did? At some point, Dan, Kathy, as the, as the Christian leader, and this guy as the LGBT leader, had both objectified one another. Oh, all Christians are like this. They're all just bigoted, hated, hateful people who, who just want to keep us down and just want to persecute us. Dan Cathy had, had, had seen this, that, that, that everybody, you know, that there was just a homosexual agenda that just trying to keep America back. But he took the steps of reaching beyond the box, reaching beyond the definitions to actually sit down and get to know somebody. And I got to tell you, if you will do this in your life, if you will stop seeing people by the labels that they get in this society, if you stop acknowledging people according to their outward labels, whether it's gay or straight or rich or poor or Republican or Democrat, if you get to a place where you can sit down and see them as a human being created in the image of God who want, at the end of the day, the same things that you want, it will change you from the inside out. And even greater, it will change this world. I believe, you know, when I hear this, this conversation, you know what I see? I see the Holy Spirit at work. I see that this is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. These conversations they're, they're having, God is doing something both in the Christian and in the homosexual. God is moving in both of their hearts, and He's in that space between them. And that's where God operates. It's so easy for us to look at the news and just or listen to talk radio and just get all our views just spoon-fed to us and forced down our throats and just to look at everything based on the way it's portrayed. You know, when I went to Israel several years ago, um, 
You know, I, I'd seen so much stuff about the Israel-Palestinian thing. You know, the, I, I got to sit down one night and hear a, a discussion between two guys who were friends. One was a, a Palestinian Christian who was a, a professor at the university, and one was an Israeli businessman. And they talked about the issues, but at the end of the day, they were friends. And what I found is that as much as we want to demonize either the Palestinians or the Jewish people over there for what they're doing, most people, the majority of the people that I met over there just want the same things that you and I want. They want to be able to go to work, provide for their family, and live in a world that's safe. We as people can contribute to the objectification of one another in this society. I, I would hope that nothing in America ever happens the same way that it happened with Nazis. Actually, it has. It happened, <laughs> happened with the Indians. It happened with the Africans. But the only hope I see for this country is not if we can fight a moral war. It's, it's the, only, the only hope for America is not, a, not winning a cultural battle. The only hope for America is that the church starts actually being the church, embodying the very faith that we profess, that we would actually enter into the world of others, that we would set a people, that we'd invite people who are different from us, different religions, different social walks, uh, different areas of life. That's exactly what Jesus did, by the way. Jesus wasn't freaked out by all the sinners who were showing up. He says, because at least, at least these folks know they need a doctor. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Today, I want us to just close with a, with a time of reflection. And I just want us to think, to be honest for a moment, just to invite the Holy Spirit to show us, where is it, where is it <laughs> that we are objectifying other people? Where is that? Where have we made people their political beliefs? We've made them their jobs. We've made them whatever society's put them into. Where are we only acknowledging people for their externals? Where are we afraid to sit down and dialogue or actually just pay attention? Where are we not seeing the people all around us in our life? So I want to just close by, by reading through, through these questions on the outline. And I put them in first person. So when I read them out, I'm not asking you all to judge me, okay? I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to, to just speak to us this morning as we get quiet. Come, Lord. Reveal Jesus to us right now. Can you be honest with the kinds of feelings that you may be feeling right now um, as I read this story, as I've, as I've given this message today? You may not even like what I'm saying. That's, that's fine, but, but be honest with them.
What does it mean to you that God does not see you primarily as your gifts, your talents, or your job, but as his child created in his image? What does that mean to you? Ask yourself this, who are the people in the world that I have dismissed with a label? The ones that I refuse to, to see. Are there areas in my life where I'm guilty of viewing and relating to others simply as objects for my own gain or as barriers to what I want to happen? Finally, just ask yourself how you can make more space in your life to, to, to actually see others as humans created in the image of God. I'm going to close this service by reading the text once again. But, but, but now I, I want you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that you're Matthew. Or a female version of Matthew. And I want you to imagine that, that you've been working a job for years. A despised job. And when most people walk by you, if they look at you at all, it's with contempt. 
When most people look at you, unless they're, they're the Roman officials, they're, they're looking down on you with disdain. I want you to imagine that your own people, the people in your neighborhood, the people who go to church every week, look down on you with disgust. And that is your job every day, eight to ten hours a day, sun up to sundown. You are looked down by, on by constant people every morning of the day. Particularly by the religious. I want you to imagine that, that, that all of your friends are in the same kind of position as you. They're all, they're all just reputable people who, who the only reason they hang out with you is because they're, they're, they're caught in some of the same bad things that you're caught in. I want you to realize the, the hopelessness that, that even when you want to quit this job, you, you don't know how to quit it because who's going to hire you because you've done so much wrong. I want you to imagine that your, your, your prospects for a future are, 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 are so tied into this, this way of living that you don't even want to do. So as I read this passage again, put yourselves in Matthew's shoes, sitting at that tax booth on the edge of the Sea of Galilee that day when Jesus walks by. Passing along, Jesus saw a man at his work collecting taxes. His name was Matthew. And Jesus said, come along with me. Matthew stood up and followed him. And later when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with the crooks and the riffraff? Jesus, overhearing, shot back. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not to coddle insiders.